Acts 13, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 12. And what we'll be looking at today is Barnabas and Saul on their first missionary uh, ministry trip. We'll be really concentrating on mostly on the boldness that Saul has in his interactions with important and high-status figures and how that's going to continue out through the rest of the book of Acts. Uh, and we're also going to ask ourselves some very difficult questions towards the end of the message. So, if you go ahead and join me, Acts chapter 13, we'll be starting in verse 4. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to, to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Alamis the magician, for that is what, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you, shall be, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Amen. So, last week, we ended our reading being told that the church sent out Barnabas and Saul, right? But now, in the first verse of this section, we're told that the Holy Spirit sent them out. And both of these statements are true, right? The Holy Spirit and the church sent them out on this mission because both of those things are needed. As the church, you can send out as many people as you want into the world to do all these great things, right? Missionaries, preachers, prophets, we can send all of them out. But if the Holy Spirit isn't behind it, if the Spirit of God isn't guiding it in the right direction, then it isn't going to produce as much fruit. And in fact, it may end up producing rotten fruit in the end. We must always seek the Spirit's guidance in both call and mission, just like we talked about that last week. It's vital to our work as the church. It's vital to sharing the gospel to all people in all lands, even just surviving as a Christian in everyday life. We always need to speak, seek the Spirit of God. Now, we don't see uh, any ministry work that really takes place in Seleucia. It's more than likely that Barnabas and Saul may have just gone through here because it was a port city in Antioch. But we can imagine that on the way, they did witness in, on their way and going through the town. And once they were in the city and waiting to get on the boat, they were probably witnessing to people in that time and just pointing them back to the church in Antioch. They then sailed to the island of Cyprus, which is the home of Bar Barnabas, man, and landed in Salamis, which is a city on the east coast of the island. And when they get here... We see something that we'll see often on these travels. 
Almost to the point where it can start to get confusing because it's so repetitive that it happens every single time. They get to a city and Saul goes straight to a synagogue to preach the gospel. Every single time. And he did this on purpose because he obviously wanted to see the Jews get saved. And he knew that there was a custom at this time that would allow men like him to get up and speak in front of a congregation even if it wasn't his home synagogue. See, Saul was a highly trained rabbi. Right? He was a Pharisee, as he describes in Philippians 3. So this would mean that he more than likely uh, wore some type of clothing that would make him stand out from other people. Kind of like how in certain Christian traditions you have priests or pastors that will wear the white collars or even robes with a stole. Right? It's something that makes them stand out in the room. You know who they are. You know their status within the church. Saul would have most likely wore something like this as well. So some type of special head covering, maybe even a special robe that he would wear. And Saul knew that this custom would would give him the opportunity to preach Jesus to these congregations. And he used this to every advantage that he could. And, And can you just kind of imagine that for a moment, right? So everybody's walking into the synagogue. You have the leading rabbi standing there. And Saul, Barnabas, and John go sit down in the midst of everybody else. The rabbi's scanning the room, and he sees Saul, right? And he sees that he's a man of, of great status within the faith. And he asks him if he wants to come up and say something to the congregation. And he would probably expect that it would be some type of encouraging word or telling what's going on in the Jewish faith in other cities. And then, boom. Salvation through faith in Christ alone is preached to this entire congregation, right? The rabbi is probably freaking out a little bit, right? Trying to get everything under control, but it's just way too late at this point. And Jesus has been preached. That probably would have felt like, like kind of like a punch in the face, you know? This is an important and consistent tactic used by Saul. We find that he writes about it later in his letters, and he puts it into practice into every city that he goes, right? The gospel is preached first to the Jews, and then it's taken to the Gentiles. First, because the Jews would have had an idea of these prophecies that he spoke of, right? They would have had an understanding of the language of uh, the Christ who came to save the Jews, or the, the coming kingdom of God, Right? They would have understood all of this language. He's probably standing up there doing interpretation of Isaiah 53 to them and showing them how it points to Jesus and that all need to repent and believe. But above any of those reasons, these, these are his people. Right? In Romans chapter 9, 1 through 3, Paul, talking about the salvation of the Jews, writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Understand that he was willing in this statement to throw his entire salvation away, to be cut off completely from Christ, to be cut off completely from the Father, if it meant that his Jewish brothers and sisters could be saved. This was such an important thing from him, right? He did not want 
these people to be lost. And it was painful for him, right? He describes it as, as feeling a sense of agony. But he also knew that a majority of them would not listen to it, and they would continue to be lost. And in the end, Saul was right. The Jews in mass would normally reject this message of salvation through Christ. And a lot of the time, a lot of the time, they would go to him and be with such anger that they, they, they'll end up going towards him violently. Right? And we'll see that more and more as Acts goes on. A quick, a quick reference point here before I move to the next section. Um, this John that we read of in this section, this would be John Mark, right? We saw Peter go to his mother's house during Acts chapter 12 during his prison escape. And this would be the same John who was you know, also called Mark that would end up writing the gospel of Mark. So he was a very valuable person to have on this journey with them. Right? He was raised in Jerusalem. He was a witness to many of the things that happened in the ministry of Jesus. So that gave him that credibility that in a way both Barnabas and Saul did not have because he had that eyewitness. Um, and they used that to their advantage as well. But after this stop, they moved along to the city of Paphos, which was on the west coast of Cyprus. And if you go ahead and you read the history on this city you'll see that this city was notorious for idolatry, right? This city was a hub in the ancient world for uh, worship of the false Greek goddess Aphrodite, right? And if you know anything about Aphrodite, then you know the type of things that were probably going on in that city, and it was probably pretty gross the majority of the time. And Saul and Barnabas get called up to meet with the proconsul, or most would say that that status is a, similar to a governor, Right? And this would have been a big deal, right? It's not every day that you get asked to, to come and speak to somebody of, of such uh, stature and authority, right? It was probably a little nerve-wracking for these guys. And we're told that he's an intelligent man, and that would mean that he's obviously open to these types of conversations and ideas and kind of working through them. <laughs> Sorry about that. But with Paulus, there's a man named Bargesus Alamus. All right, Bar-Jesus means the son of Yeshua, right? That is what it's translated to. Alemus means uh, sorcerer, as we read a little bit further on in our uh, text. We don't really know much about this guy, so it's either that he was trying to just wait, ride the Jesus wave that started in Cyprus because of Barnabas and Saul, or his father's name was actually Yeshua, which was a decently popular name at the time, in these cities, right? It's clear that, that the crew were already making, a, making waves in Cyprus with their teachings about Jesus, and it's and being called here to talk to Paulus. Mm, sorry about that, man. But of course, when they go up and they start to speak to Paulus, and Paulus starts to, with that open mind that he has, start working through these things. And it's obvious that he's starting to, when we read our text, it's obvious that he's starting to maybe come to a convinced point about Jesus that the false prophet got in the way and tried to lead that governor away. Now, I want to get back to that in a minute, but here we have a shift point in the text. From verse 9 on in the book of Acts and in all of his letters, Saul will be referred to as Paul, 
right, with, with few exceptions, and there's a couple reasons for this. The first being that, that Paul is also his name, right? Saul had dual citizenship between Jerusalem and Rome. With that, like many others in his day, he would have two names, right? So Saul would be his Hebrew name, and Paul would be his Greek name. And since he's now entrenched in the Greek world and going out and doing ministry there, it makes more sense for him to go by Paul because that's what most of the people would understand when he started talking or when his name was written. But this, is also a, a, this also marks a distinct moment in history. Much like when Abram had his name changed to Abraham or Jacob to Israel, Saul to Paul is really where his ministry actually starts right? It's a transformative moment in his life, right? He, in a way, discovers, in a way, this true calling. And we can have these moments too. But that point, before that point, we may have some type of ministry experience, and it may be bringing us some type of success. But once we step into the ministry that God has actually prepared us for, in the way that he has prepared us for, we can truly become new people in that ministry, and do greater things. We also hear that, see here that Paul, from this point on, takes a leadership role. If you pay attention up to this point, every time this team is mentioned, it's Barnabas and Saul. And from this point on in the text, every time they're mentioned as a team, it's, Ball, it's Paul and Barnabas. Right? From here on out, it's, it's important to know that distinction when it comes to where and how they conduct their ministry, that Paul has taken over that leadership role. But back to our story here, I want, I want to read for you again verses 9 and 10. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's a rather harsh, harsh statement, right? But that's Paul in a way, right? He knew that there was times that he was ha- going to have to be harsh. He knew that there was times that he was going to have to be hard on the people that were listening to him. And he knew how to do that well. Paul calls him a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness. And this is, this is a tough teaching, but it's the truth. Anyone who isn't a Christian by faith in Christ alone is not a child of God. If you are not in faithful relationship with Jesus as Lord, you are, you are a son or daughter of the devil. A person who is disobedient to God and a pawn of the evil one. And that person will try and kill evangelistic efforts at every turn, just like what Alamus does here. And this goes against a, a, a very popular teaching in our day, that all human beings are God's children. My friends, it's, it's not true, and it's not what the scripture teaches. We, do we all have value as human beings created in the image of God? Absolutely, yes. But is that image tainted by sin, and that sin separating us from God, does that make us children of the devil? Yes. And the scripture is clear about that. And we cannot be in relationship with God when we are made dirty from the iniquity of our sinful actions. 
We can only be welcomed into the family of God by adoption, just as the scripture teaches us. Right? Ephesians 1, verse 5, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Right? So this adoption is a biblical truth. And since we know that Elamis is a sorcerer, this means that he isn't a Christian anyway. Right? Because you can't practice in these things and be considered a Christian. I saw Jackie Hill Perry recently talking about all this stuff, about how all of these, these pagan ideas and rituals have somehow leaked into the church, and it's, it's, it's disturbing. And for some reason, we have major church figures that are promoting it, right? The, these, these Christians that, that go out and get healing crystals, or they burn sage in their home, or all of this manifesting talk that we hear from so many of the church, all of this stuff is not of Christ. All of this stuff is, is from the evil one, right? You're operating in a world that you don't want to be in or that we don't even fully understand when we're messing with that kind of stuff. Opening ourselves to a serious spiritual warfare that if we are not confident in Christ, we're doomed to fail from the very start. And this would in turn mean that Elamis is operating under the enemy's control to lead the governor away from faith in Jesus. Paul then places a judgment on him, and, and what we would call what happened here a, a negative miracle. And he was blinded. Interestingly, that is a very similar thing to happen to Paul, right? I, I read some commentators that, that had the idea that maybe Paul has been waiting for this moment to be able to do this to somebody else. Right? It's kind of like a wake-up call to, hey, turn to Christ. Paulus sees this, and in combination with the teaching he also received from Paul and Barnabas, he was left amazed and became a Christian that day. And we have evidence that Paulus was the proconsul at this time in this city and was converted to Christianity and lived out the rest of his life that way. After this encounter, Paul never looks back. We're going to find him leading performing miracles, preaching boldly to both Jews and the Roman people and their leaders through the rest of the book of Acts. And thanks be to God for that. Amen? Now, at this point in the message, it was, uh, it was a little bit more on the difficult side to prepare for. Explaining the text is always one thing, but even though that this was a longer explanation than most, but the application and call to action was a little bit different for me this week. The reason it was so difficult was every time that I read the scripture, every time I prayed over the scripture, every time I studied it, every time I started writing it, a single question came to my mind every single time. Now, I'll be honest, I wasn't really sure how to answer that question as I was getting prepared for this. For those who don't know, I am... I am a big Kevin Costner fan, so if I start quoting movies, a lot of the time it's going to be Kevin Costner movies. But it's the same question that Sean Connery asks Kevin Costner in The Untouchables. What are you prepared to do? Or us as the church, what are we prepared to do? Do we have this boldness? Do we have this courage that Paul shows here in our text? When we go places or when we see people, do we have this same boldness to witness for Christ in these spaces just as Paul did? 
no matter where it is or, or who's around us. Maybe it's at work, maybe it's at school, meeting with prominent figures in the community. Are we willing to lay everything on the line in those moments for the cause of Christ and his kingdom? Knowing that we may be shut down. Knowing that it may turn violent like it already has started to become in certain areas. Knowing that we may be arrested, just like what happened a couple weeks ago in Pennsylvania. Do we, as the body of Christ, have the courage to do it, or are we okay being in our bubble, away from everybody and everything by ourselves? And I know that, this, that what I'm going to say here may sound harsh, and it may sound tough, but it's a reality. As the church, where's the evidence that the body of Christ in mass is ready to rip off this veil of respectability that we love to have and go out and preach Christ in the streets with no repercussions of, with no fear of the repercussions? We can get all upset we want. We can get all upset we want that schools are taking out Bibles or they're not allowing prayers or they're allowing the gender madness that's going on. But where are we when the decisions are made? Why aren't we in the room on these school boards? Why are we seemingly only a reactionary force instead of being a preventing one that's there with a seat at the table from the very beginning? Church, we must do better. We must have the courage that Paul shows in our text. And we'll show throughout the rest of Acts. Paul and Barnabas knew what could happen to them, right? Paul took part in it. When it came to the stoning of Stephen. But they went and did it anyway. And we must go and do it anyway. We must preach the gospel knowing that even if it, if it doesn't work on our, in our favor here, Christ will always be victorious in the end. And our duty as followers of Jesus is to do the necessary things. To do the good and righteous things calling people and their leaders, whoever it is, calling them to repentance and faith through the Son of the one and only true and living God. We need to pray for the courage to do so. Pray for the Spirit to change our hearts. Pray for ourselves and the church universal that we would be willing to call for that type of change. Willing to go out into the world and, and, and at the end of the day not care about what's going to happen to us. Because we know that even if the worst comes to worst happens, when we shut our eyes and open them, we will be in the sight of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for another day to, to stand in your presence. To worship you through prayer, through song, and through the preaching of your holy word. Lord, we, we pray for boldness and we pray for courage this morning. That we would not be afraid just as your word tells us in numerous times and in numerous ways. That we would be the people that you have called us to be in the time that you have called us to be in. Lord, we pray that if there's anybody in this room that needs prayer this morning, that they come forward and receive that. To know that if they are in need, the church will stand with them. That we will pray and act on their behalf as the church. Lord, we bless you this morning for all the ways that you have blessed us.
We love you and we thank you. Praise your faithfulness forever. Amen.